Let me pray, and then we're going to look at Isaiah 53. Lord, we come to you now, and we bow before your word. This gift, this instrument by which you shape your people and have and do and will reveal yourself to your people. I'm as guilty as anybody of having several copies of your word to us on my shelf and often very little of it in myself, in my own person. In spite of our frailty and our disinclination to hear from your spirit, we thank you for your spirit who breaks down our defenses, who opens our eyes, who opens our ears, and helps us to see and hear. So do your work now, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I think it was sixth or seventh grade that we had to memorize part of Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. And I, I want to say we memorized the whole thing. It seems really long, though. But the older I get, the better I was. So we memorized the whole thing. I don't think we did. But I do remember, I realize I'm popping. I lost my wind shear for this thing, so... Um, Sorry, there's a little popping going on. I remember reading that speech, even in sixth grade, thinking, man, I want to be able to communicate that way. <laughs> we, listened to it, we, we listened to it, and then we read it. I thought, I want to be able to speak like that. His imagery, his use of his, his capturing the imagination, I said, I want, to, I want to speak like that. Now, I grew up in Bushnell, Illinois, which is super isolated in the middle of nowhere. I didn't realize the, the true import and weight of what Dr. King was saying in our country. Also, I didn't realize, actually, nobody talks like that. Nobody communicates like he does. And uh, uh, I'm going to call time out right here. I, do we have more of those things? I think we have them up there. We're going to give you three minutes of talking among yourselves. I'm going to fix this popping thing because that's going to annoy you and me. Okay? Talk amongst yourselves for three minutes. We'll be back. Commercial. We good to go? All right. Thanks, Claire. So much better. I was becoming self-conscious two sentences in. All right. MLK, I have a dream. Roger Williams says, I want to speak like that. And then I realized nobody speaks like that. Uh, it, and, uh, and by all accounts, Dr. King was probably as close as anything that we've had in modern history as a prophet. Right, ability to speak in a way that captures the imagination with these uh, um, images that are clear and vibrant and serve to uh, clarify a particular kind of hope and galvanize people in very difficult uh, circumstances and situations. And uh, obviously still very weighty. And uh, if, you, if you haven't listened to that recently, I would encourage you, to, it's, it'll be like the best 17 minutes you will spend digitally this week. If you just listen to the I Have a Dream speech, you can do it at lunch today. Just pull out your phone, look for it on YouTube. It'll be fantastic. I encourage you to do that. Uh, Dr. King playing the role of a prophet in our culture, if you will, sort of speaking truth to power, as we're, we often say. In a different way, I mean, God has used prophets in his redemptive history he used prophets in the scripture. We've been walking through the Old Testament. We've done it in a historical fashion. So the people were led out of slavery in Egypt. They were into the promise, wilderness, promised land. Their continual rebellion back into exile. And as Taylor preached last week, God brought them out of exile. But when they got back to Israel, they're like, huh, not quite what we had anticipated. 
And so that's kind of the end. Then the next historical move is 400 years of silence, and then Jesus comes on the scene. But we wanted to back up a little bit and, and show that, like, uh, during that whole time of Israel's history, God raised up prophets for them that spoke with, and, and wrote with these w- ways of communicating that captured the imagination so it would clarify truth for the people and, and galvanize the people to be hopeful. Now, we think of prophets as like those who tell the future. That's happened sometimes in the Old Testament, and actually what we're looking at today is a prophecy, but most of the Old Testament prophets were just speaking God's truth into a situation, often to kings who were often disobeying the truth, and the people to encourage them to help them hold on. Today, we're looking at the prophet Isaiah, and his prophecy of who the one who comes to be known as the suffering servant, which was this image that that galvanized the people of Israel. Uh, Isaiah prophesies in the time where the northern kingdom, if you remember what we've said for the last few months, gets, gets wiped away, and the southern kingdom has got issues, and Isaiah apparently sees these issues coming, and so this must be a little bit of a prophecy ahead of time for a time where Isaiah sees through the Spirit that they are in slavery again, in distress again, in exile again, and are longing for another exodus. And so the book of Isaiah is about this one who will come and lead them into a new exodus. In fact, we talk about this at Christmas time. So we, we, we often cover like Isaiah 9. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And this one will come and, and bring them back in, from, this, uh, from, from distress and slavery into freedom. And he will begin this kingdom that will have worldwide implications. All nations will be touched to it by it. And in, under this rule and reign of this king, people will experience real, real freedom. Toward the end of Isaiah, it emerges that the one who is going to lead this is called the servant of God. The servant. And there's four different, what theologians now called servant songs, sections of this servant who starts to be a little bit, who starts as less known and gets more known, as the one who's going to initiate and inaugurate this this new kingdom that touches everything, however long that might take. The one called my servant. Uh, The one who acts on behalf of the Lord to carry out his will. Isaiah 53, then, is God's answer to how that will happen, how this servant will do that, but it's in a surprising way. That this servant will be an exalted king who ends up serving in humility. That this servant will... Uh, have victory, but it will happen through his defeat. That this servant will bring life to his people, but it will be through giving his own life away. And that somehow, even after he pours out his soul to death, somehow, we're going to see at the end of this passage, he ends up alive and satisfies with, satisfied with what he sees. So Isaiah 53, of course, on this side of everything, we know the rest of the story. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus 700 years before Christ. Okay, there's not really a dispute about how old the scroll of Isaiah is. I mean, there's a little, you know, wavering back and forth between exact dates, but it's hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And uh, think about what 700 years ago was for us, right? No America, 
no enlightenment, no Protestant church, no printing press, no voyages of Columbus. Right, this is ancient history to us. That's how long before the coming of Jesus this prophecy was. And sometimes it's been called the fifth gospel because it's so eerily biographical of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah 53. And so if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be greatly encouraged at this passage. This is just a distinct sign of clear prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus. And if you're, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're kind of wrestling with the claims. I really encourage you, like, for, for intellectual integrity, you've got to deal with Isaiah 53. It's so rich. Uh, so what do we do with a passage like this? Some of you have done it this week, and you told me. I heard from multiple people this week, because you read it in community group, or you knew we were going to talk about it, or you read it in your home. You said, just reading that out loud... Just reading that was a weighty reality. As we thought about it, as we reflected on it, it was powerful. Uh, you were doing what the prophet actually says to do in the, in the introduction to this in, in Isaiah 52, 13. You were beholding it. Behold. Behold is a very common word in Isaiah when he introduces a prophecy. Behold, look at this. Look at what I'm about to say. That's weird. You can't look at what somebody's going to say, but what he's saying is uh, consider it deeply. And as you consider it deeply, you are changed. And this, this anticipates something that happens in the New Testament. I put this in the insert in the top there, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, for God, who, let, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I realize that's kind of a word salad sentence, but uh, what this is saying is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to give us a sight that we did not have previously. So that now when we look at and think of Jesus, we say, there is a beauty there that I did not recognize before. There's, a, there's something I am comprehending in Jesus. It's the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he's talking to people that didn't see Jesus personally. They came, this is after Christ came on the scene and had been ascended to heaven. They're saying, like, you look on the face of Christ somehow. How is that? By beholding, by considering, by reflecting on, by meditating on, by thinking of him. The, elsewhere, the scripture calls this the eyes of the heart. So if you're in Christ, you may not know this, you don't have five senses. You have six. You have received a sixth sense by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture calls the eyes of the heart, whereby when you consider Jesus, he is beautiful, powerful, glorious, and you love his service, and you love his love for you. It's a radical thing. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's beautiful. And so what we do with a passage like this is we behold it. We just look at it. And here we're seeing that the mission of God unfolds in our world, in our, in our own life, as we behold the servant, Jesus, in his serving. So I just want to let, let's do that. Let's walk through this passage and you know, before we do that, I've got to introduce one concept that comes up here. That is the, the, the arm of God. It's a, it's a phrase used in Isaiah, otherwise called the, the right arm of God, the right hand or the right arm of God. Um, it's a sign of power. 
Uh, ever since I was a baseball player in high school, I was a pitcher, and I would have this uh, bicep and tendon pain right here after I pitched. It's pretty common. But since then, I, so we're talking about like 150 years now, since then, like, I go tweak it so often. And if I'm picking up something heavy or awkward, and this last week I was picking up a water heater. I was taking a water heater out of my house, and stupidly, without calling my son, who's stronger than I am, to help me, I'm like, I'm going to do this. And I got my arms all around, and I started to lift up, and it just, I, I felt it go. And I'm like, oh. And so this week, I've been kind of, I can't get anything out of the top shelf of the fridge with my right arm. I'm a right-handed person. I am weakened because the right arm is so strategic in my life for taking my will and affecting it on my environment. I need my right arm. Most people are right-handed. So in the Bible, the arm or the right arm of God uh, is, becomes a sign of God's power to affect his will in any environment. And in, so in Isaiah 42.10, I didn't put this in your insert, but it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. So this, this picture of this coming king and the announcement is, Look, he comes and he's going to rule with his, his, his arm, his arm of might and power. But then nothing happens for a few chapters. In Isaiah 51, Isaiah 51, 9, the prophet in sort of like exasperation says, Awake, O Lord, awake and put on strength, O arm of the Lord. As in days of old, with the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab, or that's the name for Egypt, to pieces, who pierced the dragon? So it's like, Isaiah's like, Lord, are you sleeping? Wake up and help us. Exercise your arm of power to rescue us in a new exodus like you did in the old exodus from Egypt against that uh, dragon, Pharaoh. Also, Pharaoh standing behind Pharaoh is another dragon, another serpent, Satan. So this picture of the people calling out for God to exercise his power through his right arm, his arm of power. Okay. One chapter later. Now, this is in your insert. Isaiah 52, 13. I'm, let's start on Isaiah 52, 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He's bared his holy arm, right? He's rolling up his sleeves. Time to get to work. That's the picture. Rolling up his sleeves. Um, this is it. This is the picture of God affecting his will in the world with his powerful arm. And so... We're, we're going to walk through Isaiah 53 and just going to toggle back and forth between it and the life of Jesus, especially thinking about his death and then his resurrection. And because of time, I'm not going to mention all the New Testament references, but you can just, if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, it's got cross-references usually in the middle or at the bottom of the page. You can look, you know, it says, Near, next to Isaiah 53, see John 12, 38, and just go to the New Testament and read to see how the New Testament picks this up everywhere. But this is rich, and we're going to move through it. Like if you get, if you got on, a, on an elevator on the bottom floor of a building, and into the elevator steps a friend you haven't seen in 20 years, he's like, "Oh, tell me everything's gone on in your life in the last 20 years." I've got to get off at the fifth floor. Go push the button. You're not going to cover much. Uh, Isaiah 53 is like five sermons. It's five different three 
three-verse paragraphs, and each of them are rich. So we're going to be ultimately dissatisfied with what we do here. We just have to fly by it. Here we go. We are changed as we behold the servant in his serving. First, we see there's a mystery to this whole thing. Verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, there it is. Behold, look. Look at what I'm going to say. My servant shall succeed. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is language about God himself from Isaiah 6. If you remember that, that vision where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord in his throne room high and exalted, and the creatures were around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. He was high and exalted. That language is picked up and placed right down on the servant. This is the one who is high and exalted, and he will succeed in what he will do. Yet, verse 14 As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So, like, what's this one who's high and exalted doing being beaten and bloodied? Right? His his appearance was marred. Remember, the end of Christ's life, he's arrested, he's, he's beaten in the face, struck with rods, he's beaten 39 times with a... A leather whip studded with bone. He had thorn of crowns pressed upon his head, drawing blood. He's so weakened he can't even carry his own cross. This is the one who's the exalted king? I, we're supposed to feel the disjunction there. There's a mystery. How is, this, how is this happening? What's going to happen? Verse 15, as a result of this, so shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was, had not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. As a result of this disfigurement, he will succeed. He will sprinkle many nations. That's just Old Testament language from Leviticus about the cleansing of sin. Sprinkle people from many nations, representatives of many nations. Now, that's good for here, you all here, right? Unless you're not 100% Jewish people here. Probably. You are in verse 15. There will also be a reversing of the hardening of mind and heart that takes place because of sin. Even some kings who are used to being large and in charge and mighty among men will in humility have nothing to say. They'll shut their mouths. They'll stop, they're just going to stop talking because they're going to see something they did not see. Hear something they did not hear and understand something they did not understand. Now, if you've been reading through Isaiah, you will realize, oh, right after the vision of Isaiah where he saw God high and lifted up, God sent Isaiah and said, Isaiah, guess what? You're going to preach and they're not going to see, they're not going to hear, and they're not going to understand but the servant will come and he will make them see, hear, and understand. Do not grow discouraged if someone you love, someone you know, for whom you've been praying, does not see, hear, and understand yet. It is the work of the servant to open ears, open eyes, and open minds. And he does it all the time. Just hang in there. We keep praying. This is the work of the servant. Do not grow discouraged. Do not grow weary. 
Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Answer, not many believed initially. Not many believed. And if it seems like not many around us believe now, again, we don't need to get discouraged. We have only to think of the movement of the effect of this servant in history. From generation to generation, from one solitary figure on a cross at Calvary to millions and millions and millions. Oh, none of them perfect and all of them in churches that are not perfect, but millions of people who say this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. In this room. And here it becomes clear that the arm of the Lord is the servant. So it's equating the arm of the Lord and the servant. And I just got to do a little nerdish Trinitarian theology with you just for a second, okay? And this is going to be important a little bit later in the passage. The arm is Yahweh's power. So he, he is, all the commentators say, he is both Yahweh and not exclusively Yahweh at the same time. What's going on here? Uh, in Isaiah 53, remember, we're in, the, we're in the Old Testament still. These, some things have not become clear, which we have the privilege of history and looking back on things. Yah, when you see the word Lord in your Bible, it's the word Yahweh. It's the name of God. And we say that would be Father, Son, and Spirit together. Father, Son, and Spirit together. Now, typical Americans, when they see, think Lord, they think Father. And we do that because we're not thinking clearly. When we see the Lord, it has to be Father, Son, and Spirit together as we understand God now. That's the Trinist, Trinitarian theology. So in history, uh, in history, Father, Son, and Spirit say, Behold, my servant will come in, uh, in 700 years before Christ. And then 700 years later in history, the second person of the Trinity who we call now Jesus as he takes on flesh, steps into that role and takes the role of the servant. Okay? If you want to be really nerdy, you can look up the, the phrase inseparable operations of the Trinity, in which there's only one will, and then divine appropriations of the Trinity, in which one action can be attributed to one member of the Trinity without separating out the other three. Okay, I know you don't care. You've glazed over. But it's going to be important in a second. Uh, just understand that 700 B.C., Father, Son, and Spirit are saying this. In time, the servant, Jesus the servant, steps in. Okay. Uh, no, verse 2. For he, the servant, the arm, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should take pleasure in him. There's a lot here. I'm just going to pare it down and say, Jesus came from humble and frail beginnings uh, of a meager resource, not a likely place for a messianic king to spring from. You know, it's a surprising thing. Like if you're in a you know, dry, like you're, you're walking on a sidewalk, and you see like a little plant shooting up, like, oh, okay, hardy little fellow, but he doesn't have much of a future, right? Um, he wasn't special. He wasn't magnetic. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't handsome. He had no magnetic quality by which normal humans would be attracted to him. Now, you just think about the, the staggering nature of that statement in our world today. Like the moment, like any Hollywood actor or actress says, I, says something vaguely 
deistic or Christian or theistic in some way. We make them a spokesman for, like, all of a sudden, Chris Pratt is the new John Calvin or something like that. It's stupid. Um, just, I don't know if he still claims we follow in Jesus. Eventually, he's going to say something really stupid. Why? Because he shouldn't be a spokesman. He's just a guy who happens to be a good actor and have good abs, right? That doesn't make him a great theologian. Okay? But we, we love the star quality. And we want the star. We want that athlete. We want that actor. We want that, that musician, you know, that, that pop musician who says something about Jesus and we'll lift her up and, and have her be a spokesman. And usually to her, you know, it's not good for her or him. Jesus apparently doesn't think you have to dress up the message. Just embody it. That's how he operates effectively in the world. If you pass Jesus on the street in the first century, he would look like any other guy. But not just that, and you would ignore him, right? Not just that, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So there's a progression he, was, he would be ignored as one who is plain, but not just ignored, actively despised and actively rejected. And not just actively despised and actively rejected, then people would turn away from shame, from him in shame and disgust. So it goes like, it would go from like, who's that guy? To like, what's he saying? Oh, that's terrible. I hate that guy. To like, ooh, ooh, turning away. It's graphic language. We're talking about the one who is high and exalted in Isaiah 6. Today we would say Jesus was publicly shamed and humiliated. Not just mocked, but hated in the most public way possible, which culminates completely exposed and completely naked, crucified on a cross. And almost everybody who would look on that would do this. Can I look at that? I was teaching in a class yesterday in our seminary, and one student was, I could tell, she was very upset with something I was saying. Um, and uh, I could tell she was, she was, there was heated, like, looks at coming at me. And, like, on one hand, like, I don't care. I'm the professor. Like, what? I? But then I was like, oh, man, that kind of that hurts me a little bit, you know? It's stupid. But in the moment, I'm thinking that. And, like, that was just a, a, a lady who didn't understand what I was saying and who probably didn't think real clearly anyway. And so it's like um, she was mad at me like I was feeling it. We don't live, we almost never do people despise us actively. It's not culturally acceptable. I mean, that happens online, I know, but in person, actual, active, despising and disgust and hatred and saying, I'm not going to look at you, I'm turning away. It's too much. Why? Here's why. Verse 4. Surely it was our grief he himself bore, and our, our sorrows which he shouldered. In all of this, Jesus is both fully identifying with his people and substituting himself for his people. We'll talk about both of those here coming up. Let's just talk about identification for a minute. He knows what it is to live in a broken world. Jesus becomes truly human 
and truly experiences the weight of brokenness and sorrow in this world. He, the Scripture says he's been tempted in every way as, as we are. He's tasted sorrow in every way, not every single way, but like every manner. And so if you have something that is weighing on you today, you are feeling the heat of this world or the brokenness of this world in some way, or it could be your own sin, the sin of others, it could just be the, the wreck of life in whatever way, uh, I need you to know Jesus knows how to give us comfort in this. He does. And I want to truly encourage you to go to him with this and stay there until he answers. Now, sometimes we feel like, well, I, I prayed and I didn't really, nothing became clear. Okay, Jesus doesn't answer very fast sometimes. You know why that is? Often? Because, uh, for me, I come to him, and I'm like, here's what I need to know, and I have this range of options he needs to operate in. And apparently, his answer is not on my card. And I have to sit there long enough till I say, you know, I don't need this card anymore. I really want to know what you have for me in this. Because here's what we know. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he knows how to how to aid us in temptation. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Therefore, he knows how to aid us when we are pressed in, sorrow presses in on us or grief and affliction presses in on us in whatever way. I appreciate sometimes that you guys come to me for advice, some of you. I know nothing compared to Jesus. I go often for advice to Mike Spencer, who's a brilliant guy, and I love Mike, okay? A lot of you love Mike. Mike knows nothing compared to Jesus, right? Now, he knows a lot more than the rest of us, but he knows nothing compared to Jesus. And so we got to go to Jesus and just sit there until we get clear. Uh, and even though that's what he was doing, right, that's not what everybody thought. As for us, humanity, we thought him plagued, struck down by God, and afflicted. We just assumed, you know, the, the onlookers just thought Jesus was being judged by God because he was a common criminal, an insurrectionist. But that's not what was happening. Here's what was actually happening. This is the tip of the spear. For me, this is one of the most weighty two verses in all of Scripture. In all of this revelation God gives to us. This is probably why I've been preaching for 30 years and haven't preached a sermon on this passage. It's too much. We did it for Good Friday. We read through it. And even at this, we're just flying by it. So I'm still not considering this a real sermon on it. But here it is. The one who is exalted. Verse 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment bringing us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we have what Christians for 2,000 years have called substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted himself in the place of his people. The just effects of our sin, selfishness, saying no, going our own way, turning away from our creator God to our own way, which is also death, (laughs) 
the effects of all of that that would be on us put on him. Uh, collectively, we all have done that. We all like sheep. But then he is very specific. Each of us have turned to our own way. You have turned to your own way. Roger, <laughs> I'm one of you. You have turned to your own way. And what did Jesus do? He said, have it your way. No. He substituted himself for us. The punishment, the chastisement that for sin that was ours was put upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now that healing is not, it's, it's real, it's started, but it's not complete yet. The, the action has happened, but the fullness is not complete yet. So it would be like if you, uh, if this is great videos out there where people are filming like a, uh, a volcano explodes and they can see it first, they see it, and it blows. So that's the event has happened. And they're like, oh, that's so cool. That's so great. And like three seconds later, the camera goes, because the shock wave comes. The event has already happened. The shock wave is coming. Right? And even if we taste it, even the shock wave in that would be faster than the speed of sound. So even if they hear it, they, they survive it, like, oh, my goodness. And then you hear, right? There's these reverberations. The cross is the, the event, the explosions, and shock waves throughout history and in our own life. The event, he, by his wounds, we have already been healed. That's happened. It's unfolding. And we look forward today when that full effect takes us over. That's the return of Christ. The restoration of all things. Uh, this is the tip of the spear of the gospel. Behold. We look at it, we think about it, we rejoice in it, we reflect on it, and we live. And it changes us. Because we've been given a sixth sense. Verse 7. He let himself be brutalized and accepted humiliation. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In John 10, Jesus says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I have authority from my Father to take it up and lay it down again. But nobody takes it. So that I put, this is, a, this is the ESV translation with a little bit of enhancement from a Hebraist named J. Alec Matir. I'm trying to bring out the the fullness of each of those Hebrew words, though that's kind of awkward in English, he let himself be brutalized. His intention from before the foundation of the world was to redeem a people. Behold. Verse 8, by oppression and injustice he was taken away. We covered this last year in the Gospel of Luke. Everything about the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus was a sham. They broke their own laws. And as for his contemporaries, who was it that considered that he was cut down from the land of living because he was stricken for the transgression of my people? Basically, nobody understood what was happening. There were only a few people left at the cross, the Apostle John, Jesus' mom, and a few other people. But they weren't there because they're like, he's affecting the salvation of the nations. No, it's like they, were, they loved Jesus and they had fidelity toward him. He was alone. Verse 9, and they, made, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So Jesus 
uh, would have been assigned a common grave as a criminal but did not receive it because a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, a friend of Jesus, said, I have, I'm rich, I have some land, here's an extra a tomb that can be used for him. 700 years before this happened, right? Okay. I don't know of any other common criminals crucified in that time that got a rich man's grave. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So it was the Lord's will to work in, amidst, and through all of these injustices to accomplish his will. It wasn't a surprise to him. It was his plan to redeem us. I'm going to go back to the Trinitarian nerdish stuff for just a second, okay? In Isaiah, Yahweh, Lord, Father, Son, Spirit, say, Behold my servant. It is our will to put him to grief, to substitute him for, for, for our people, for my people. And in time, Jesus takes on that role. Here's why, here's why I'm communicating this. Um, the critics of this passage, or many passages, will say, and the whole idea of, of, of Jesus substituting himself for his people, call this divine child abuse. The father pouring out wrath on an innocent son, that's abusive. That's divine child abuse. It's a common criticism, not from Christian circles, but uh, divine child abuse. I just want to say you're just misreading the text. It's the... F- it's the will of God for the, the sins of the people to be put on the servant. Jesus takes all that on. It's his own will. That's, those wills aren't separated to receive that. So the divine appropriations, the role of the Father is to put that on him. The role of the Son is to take that. That's, that's all of their will together, okay? There's no room for the divine child abuse thing. Maybe I'm especially sensitive to that, but maybe... Uh, we just need to see Jesus didn't do this. He wasn't compelled to do it. He wanted to for us. And that's not the end of the story. When his soul, the servants, Jesus, makes an offering for guilt, that is his death, then, so then, then he's just dead, right? No. Then he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That is a 700 years before Christ's resurrection prophecy of Jesus being resurrected. Unprecedented, guys, in history. Nobody talks this way, and it never happened before. <laughs> never happens again. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands, in his hand. The effects of this crushing will become prosperous. So the question is, does it? I mean, that's a testable hypothesis. Has the will of the Lord become prosperous? Has this borne fruit? Well, look to your left. Look to your right. This is verse 10. This is the prosperous will of the Lord in the hand of the servant. The people to your left and right and the one sitting in your chair and the one speaking to you. What does Jesus think about all this? This is a good time to step back and say, what do you think his disposition is toward this? 
Is he frustrated that he had to lay down his life? Is he angry that it costs so much? Is he sad that you sin? Not at all. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see the prosperity of his work and be, what's the word? Satisfied. He looks at you as the effect of his work and is satisfied. That's a word that is usually reserved for uh, uh, being satiated by good food. Mmm, like it. The Lord looks at you, even though it costs his life, because it costs his life, and says, mmm, my people, the prosperity of my work, this is my good work in whom I'm satisfied. And there's room for a lot more. I want you to invite some other people into that. They get this delight as well. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By knowing him, people are made righteous, sharing in his righteousness, his perfection. Look, once we get that, the, most of our striving is done, but we're continually forgetting that. Most of our having to be right all the time, most of our having to be successful, comfortable, secure, all that's done, but it's hard to remember and easy to leave. And Jesus says, it's on offer always. This is what I died to give you. Verse 12, therefore I will distribute to him the many and the strong he shall distribute his spoil because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the rebellious, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the rebels. Now, unfortunately, this last verse is kind of hard to translate in Hebrews, Hebrew, and not many people understand exactly what it means at the front of it. Seems like what he's saying is that the many his people are given to him, and as a, an effect, he distributes the strong as he pleases. Like the, the, the powerful people on the earth, he's like, yeah, I'll do with you whatever I want, that sort of thing. Um, not quite sure there. But I love the end of it. He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the rebels. That's me. And that's you. And right now, this one who gave himself for the rebels, he bore our sin, actively makes intercession for us still as we rebel and push against that delight of the ages that he died to give us. Part of the way we celebrate that active ministry of Jesus week in, week out in the New City community as we come to the table, which highlights the reality of all that Isaiah 53 is, and this highlights the reality that Jesus right now at 10-11 on October 16th stands in heaven to give mercy to us through his spirit as we take and drink in faith. If that is you, this is for you. We're going to end today by our, with our statement of faith from the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. So would you stand, turn to page 10 in your worship booklet. We're going to read this together. And I'm going to say that if you can say this in earnestness, this table is open to you, and we want you to come and get it. Right? Jesus has given himself to secure us. He delights in us. So would you read this in response to me? What is your only comfort in life and death?